The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Finstaden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, the year began with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi doing his five-nation week-long tour in Africa. Right away, after about 48 hours, the guy turned right back around and made a four-nation tour here in my neighborhood in Southeast Asia through four ASEAN countries. And it really raised the point that ASEAN now is becoming a much bigger priority for the Chinese. And, and really, especially now that the pressure coming from the United States is, is intensifying in terms of trade and the diplomatic relationships are very contentious with Europe. The Chinese are definitely focusing a lot more attention on ASEAN. And it's interesting, Kobus, because ASEAN has a lot of parallels with Africa. Then that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about it today. And they have a lot of experience, probably more than anybody, in dealing with the Chinese, given that they're at the doorstep of the Chinese and they've been here forever. And so we thought today what we'd like to do is take a look at how ASEAN has been managing its relationship with China and also the United States and what lessons there might be for African countries who are struggling to figure out their place in this new era that we're in between the United States and China. Before we get started, let me just kind of introduce everybody to ASEAN in case people aren't familiar. It's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It's a 10-country block made up of about 650 million people. It's a very young region with about a third of the population under the age of 19. Now, it's also an extremely diverse region that's home to the world's largest Muslim country in Indonesia, a Catholic country in the Philippines, here in Vietnam where I am. It's a mix of Catholicism and Buddhism. There are also hundreds of languages and dialects that are spoken. So in many ways, it is very similar to Africa in the sense that it's very fragmented and very diverse. Now, economically speaking, it's an absolute powerhouse. Uh, total GDP uh, last year, about $2.3 trillion. In 2020, the ASEAN bloc became China's largest trading partner with about $732 billion in two-way trade. That puts it ahead of its number two partner, the European Union, even ahead of the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Also for the United States, it's the fourth largest export market for American goods, and two-way trade last year came in at around $323 billion. But it's also still a very poor part of the world, and that's something very, very important to remember. It's still largely in agrarian economies here. Uh, per capita income averaged uh, across the 10 countries at just over $4,000. So something to keep in mind there. Now, Kobus, right now the awareness of ASEAN countries in Africa is rather low, but that may be changing a bit. Especially where you are in South Africa, last November, 
the South African government became the first sub-Saharan African country to become an ASEAN partner when it signed the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation at the ASEAN Summit in Hanoi. So that was really interesting how South Africa, in many ways, is looking beyond China in its Asia strategy to see this giant market of 650 million people. Now, more importantly for our discussion today, this is a region, again, as I mentioned, has more experience in dealing with China than any other part of the world. So there may be some lessons here for people in other developing regions like Africa and what they can learn and what it's like to live, again, at the doorstep of China. Yes. One one of the issues, of course, is that is that ASEAN is really core Belt and Road country. Um, so there's a there's a lot to learn from from both the successes and the failures of of Belt and Road projects um, in different ASEAN countries. It's also, I think, really important for Africa to to take note of ASEAN because because it is this inc- incredibly diverse region with with several quite poor countries um, that collectively have kind of managed to to position itself as a, as a very powerful block. And, you know, that is the underlying agenda of the African Con- uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement as well, is this idea of of kind of collectivity, you know, kind of equal strength. Um, and another th- another thing that, that really is key is is the level of intra-ASEAN trade, um, which, is, which is much, much higher than the level of intra-African trade. And I think many African um, countries look at ASEAN as a kind of a holy grail in terms of, of uh, you know, of neighbors trading with each other and kind of moving moving the entire region up the value chain. Um, I think this is one of the key reasons why South Africa is also so interested in ASEAN. Yeah, it's interesting because for a long time, China has been trying to present itself as a development model for African countries. And in many ways, I never really saw that fit only because China's political history, its dynamics, the fact that it's so large, are really not compatible at all in many ways with the African experience and the African situation. Whereas, as you pointed out, ASEAN is a very different situation here. These are fragmented countries, very different from one another, don't speak the same language, very agrarian-based, and there are a lot of parallels. And for a long time, I've been looking for the right guest to join us to be able to talk about how it is here in this part of the world and the relationship with China, and I found it. In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century is a new book by Sebastian Strangio, who is also the Southeast Asia editor at the Asia-Pacific News website, The Diplomat. If you haven't picked up this book, I highly recommend it. In the Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. A very good evening in Adelaide, Australia, Sebastian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. Well, we gave a brief introduction as to what ASEAN is, where you know how dynamic this region is. Your book really covers most of the region. You didn't get to all 10 countries, but you got to most. And you really took us on a travel journey and, and I think there's two companion books, by the way, that I want to recommend to people while reading this book, Southeast Asia and the Chinese Century. Also, uh, Jonathan Hillman's book on the Belt and Road, who we spoke with earlier uh, on this show. And then also Howard French did a book on, uh, on the tributary relationship historically that China's had in this part of the world. So I thought those books together all complement what you've been writing about. So before we get into the specific countries, because I'd like to go through one by one a few of the countries to get some of your insights. Uh, Give us the the high-level overview of this part of the world and how it relates with China. Well, I mean, the the main, you know, condition, I suppose, that underpins Southeast Asia's relationship with China is, of course, geographic proximity. I mean, these two regions have been linked to each other, you know, in various ways for centuries. 
um, you know, large parts of Southeast Asia, particularly the continental parts of Southeast Asia that are territorially contiguous with China, were, you know, um, lay within the orbit of China's tributary system as, you know, um, for long periods of of history, uh, of course, you know it was never as cohesive as 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 it, as it might seem. But you know, China's influence in this region was quite considerable. Um, in addition to that, you had Chinese ethnic Chinese traders who sailed out from China's shores, um, particularly from the southern parts of of what is today China, and um, traded with the region. Um, many of them settled in the region, uh, and so you sort of have a you know a pattern of interaction which goes back uh, really centuries. And you know, as a result. Southeast Asia has been one of the first regions to feel the effect of China's reemergence as as a serious power in the region. It's you know it has experienced massive flows of investment capital. Um, we've seen you know large you know um, large numbers of Chinese expatriates and business people moving to the region, tourists coming to the region from China in increasing numbers. Um, and really, you know, it's, you know, China's economic, political, even cultural power, you know, is, is now having a profound impact on the region's development. It's interesting because so many of the anecdotes that you talk about in the individual stories from these from the different countries are many of the same themes that are common in Africa. So there is issues of Chinese labor, Chinese loans, Chinese infrastructure, managing the U.S.-China relationship. And, and so what I'd like to do now is let's go through five countries and let's see if there are lessons that can emerge from what's going on here for people in other parts of the world. So let's, you talked about the border states. Let's start with Vietnam. Vietnam has a very complex relationship with China, and this really is highlights the lack of any binary way of looking at a China relationship. On the one hand, it's a border country, it's the largest trading partner, uh, it, it, the Chinese culture is, is pervasive here. This is a country that China ruled uh, as a tributary state for a thousand years, uh, but at the same time, it went, the last war that Vietnam had was with China. Uh, it has a very tense relationship today over disputed islands in the East Vietnam Sea, South China Sea. Tell us a little bit about the Vietnam-China relationship and, and how you would define it. I think it can be summed up pretty well by, you know, Freud's idea of the narcissism of small differences. You know, to, to a large extent, Vietnam, but you know, by quite some margin, is the nation in Southeast Asia that's been most profoundly imprinted by Chinese culture and civilization. You know, in in the section of my book on Vietnam, I note, you know, I describe the, the irony that sits at the core of Vietnamese history, which is that, you know, all of the borrowed things that the country has absorbed from China, including during periods of direct imperial rule, uh, have, you know, have equipped Vietnam in many ways <clears throat> with the tools necessary to maintain, to, to establish its independence and to preserve that independence from repeated Chinese incursions. And this, this irony, this, this, this sense of closeness shadowed by hostility continues through to the present. I mean, you know, you see it today reflected in the fact that the two countries are both ruled by communist parties, you know, based, you know, which, you know, uh, have a very similar system of Leninist Confucianism. Um, and, you know, of course, China helped support the Vietnamese revolution and, you know, the, the eventual unification of the country under Vietnamese rule in 1975. And so, you know, the two communist parties have very close relationships and they have similar interests in maintaining their power in a post-communist post world. You know, by the same token, the two nations find themselves at odds uh, in the South China Sea where, you know, um, the Spratly and Parasol Islands have, 
you know, have acted as a, a sort of conduit for a deeply rooted anti-Chinese um, sort of uh, wellspring within Vietnam. And of course, you know, of, of all the nations in ASEAN, the public opinion polling um, in Vietnam, you know, shows the most stridently negative views of China. I mean, I, I spoke with people there, uh, numerous people there, and, and I didn't ha hear anyone say really anything good about China. There was, you know, um, you know, and I think that this, you know, has, th this poses a very, you know, difficult challenge for the, the, the Communist Party in Hanoi, because they rely uh, increasingly on China um, for imports, for trade. Um, a lot of the industries, manufacturing industries in Vietnam rely on components that are manufactured north of the border. And so there's this constant tension in the, in the in, you know, um, as, as a Vietnamese um, scholar told me, you know, the, the, the Vietnamese government finds itself pressed between the Vietnamese people and uh, the Chinese state. Um, and so, yeah, I, mean, I think that Vietnam is in, in some ways in one of the most challenging positions of any nation in Southeast Asia. You um, mentioned that, you know, in, in addition to this growing power of China in Vietnam, um, Japan is also a very heavy investor and contractor in, in for infrastructure in, in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, this is true for some African countries too. Um, and, I th and and many African countries would dearly like to, to attract more Japanese involvement. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about how Vietnam has managed to, to, to straddle that line between the two and how they managed to, to pull in so much Japanese investment while also pulling in so much Chinese investment? Well, the Japanese have been present in the region since, you know, the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, Vietnam, of course, at the time was, you know, in the midst of civil war. But, you know, during the, the Vietnam War years, you know, Japanese factories moved into places like Malaysia, Thailand, to a certain extent, Indonesia. Um, and, you know, it made Southeast Asia sort of the factory floor of Japanese capital. And so, you know, Japan had a lot of interest in, you know, promoting the integration of the region. And it did this through, um, primarily through the medium of the Asian Development Bank, which which, which Japan has a lot of control over. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the greater Mekong sub-region program was, was um, formulated by the ADB at the end of the Cold War with the idea of sort of bringing prosperity to a region that had experienced these horrible conflicts. And at that point, you see, you know, the Japanese government and the ADB um, funding a lot of projects designed to link together um, you know, the nations of, of, of mainland Southeast Asia, particularly. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, this program actually is one of the things that has increased China's integration with the nations to itself. It's also um, helped Vietnam to link itself to its neighbors directly to the West. So, you know, the, 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 the there's an economic corridor under construction now running from Vietnam, the ports of Vietnam, westwards toward Thailand and Myanmar, the idea of sort of knitting together a region that, you know, um, you know, that with fairly rugged geography that once kept nations from being able to trade, um, and, and, you know, with, with each other um, via land. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Vietnam's, uh, Japan's interest in Vietnam has been driven by its, in some ways, its, its commercial interests. Um, in more recent times, there's also been a, a, a you know, a very conscious attempt to offer an alternative to China and Vietnam and, and Japan does the most, I think, to meet the challenge that China uh, presents on its own terms. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the construction of large scale infrastructure on very along very similar lines to the Belt and Road Initiative. 
Yeah, it's interesting because here in Ho Chi Minh City, where I am, the Japanese are building the subway. And then up in Hanoi, the capital, it's the Chinese who are building the subway. And I think the lesson here for African countries is that you can partner with more than one country to build these large-scale infrastructure projects. And that and this is a great case study for how to do that. Also, incidentally, you talked about public opinion of the Chinese. It's definite from the peasant to the president all the way up from a you know one-year-old to a 99-year-old. There's nobody here who thinks positively of the Chinese. I mean, anti-Chinese sentiment runs deep, deep in the veins here. And that goes back because of a thousand years or 1,500 years of history there. But at the same time, interestingly enough, public opinion surveys of the Japanese in this country are very, very high and across ASEAN as well. So something to look out there as well. Let's go to Thailand. And in Thailand, you talked about how this is, you know, a very interesting country who has, again, a complex relationship with China. It depends on the Chinese for tourism, investment, for business increasingly right now. But you talked about the the bamboo, the bamboo that blows in the wind and bends both ways, because at the same time, Thailand is a key outpost for the United States as well. And yet the Thais have been able to manage relations with both the United States and with, uh, with China quite effectively. And I love that bamboo metaphor that you talked about. Tell us about uh, how Thailand manages it. Well, Thailand has you know, historically shown a great deal of um, you know, flexibility um, in, in how it manages its foreign relations. It's, it's been very good at um, balancing outside powers against each other and, and accommodating you know, the regional hegemon to a certain extent. Um, you know, I mean, this, this was a country that collaborated heartily with the Japanese, the Imperial Japan during World War II, and then, you know, quickly, um, you know, was able to avoid any real punishment for that, which is something that the British at the time um, were pushing for, um, and was quickly able to refashion itself as a, as a Cold War ally of the United States. Um, and, you know, we see a similar sort of deft adjustment to the rise of China, um, which, you know, I think you know, one of the things that is different from Thailand uh, in comparison to Vietnam is that it doesn't share a direct border with China. And so it, it lacks the friction that, 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 that you know, that border, you know, direct border often produces. There's also been a large scale migration of ethnic Chinese into Thailand, which is further, you know, and, and they've you know, intermarried for hundreds of years and um, make up large parts of the, the Thai business and political elite today. And that's also softened the, the sense of um, difference between China and Thailand. The two nations often describe themselves using family metaphors. Now, a lot of this is sort of, you know, diplomatic niceties, but there is an, a migratory connection going back hundreds of years. Many of the, the ethnic Thai peoples originated in southern China, and they still have cousins that die in uh, Yunnan province today. So there are, you know, these connections that have linked the two regions and have really softened the fears that you see, or the, you know, um, that you see in places like Vietnam, um, I think that um, you know the, the the Thai commercial elite have benefited greatly from business with China, um, and you know the country has you know shown itself is is shown itself to be quite adept in 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 you know using China to its own benefit. I mean, it it, it but Thailand has also you know subtly held the line in instances in which. You know, it has been concerned that Chinese initiatives or um, uh, were not, you know, serving its interests. And and one of the interesting things about Thailand is that there's, you know, the rail project that's currently under, you know, that's currently under construction, supposedly um, funded by um, being built by China, 
Um, the Thai government refused to take Chinese loans for the construction of this. They're funding it themselves. And this speaks to the, the leverage I think that countries can have, um, you know, when they have a, you know, a decent sized economy and they have, you know, a certain amount of, you know, a robust economy and, and a, you know, fairly, you know, capable military. They're able to set the terms of their engagement with China in a way that the smaller neighbors like um, Cambodia, Laos and Myanmar have, you know, had a more difficulty in doing um, so I think, you know, Thailand really, you know, as, as the sort of economic powerhouse, at least, you know, Vietnam is gaining on them quickly, but, you know, it's, it's traditionally been the most powerful nation of mainland Southeast Asia. And it's been able to, you know, engage with China in ways, uh, very purposefully in ways that benefit it. Um, you know, and that, of course, has is, is introduced strains in its, its traditional alliance with the United States. Following up on that, what were some of these strains and, uh, and how did Thailand manage it? The alliance between Thailand and the United States was basically a Cold War alliance. Um, the two nations had a strong shared interest in preventing communist subversion and expansion. Of course, that referred to the Soviet Union, but predominantly to China, which loomed just over, um, you know, only 100 kilometers from Thailand's northern border. Um, and of course, China was backing a communist insurgency in Thailand that sought the overthrow of the monarchy um, and then the establishment of communist state, as in Vietnam. So there you know, the two nations were united by that. At the end of the Cold War, things enter a period of apparent drift. Um, you know, it, and I think that the, a lot of the tensions that have arisen have um, re been a result of the American reaction to the course of Thai domestic politics. And of course, this will be something familiar, um, you know, in Africa, that the question of human rights and political freedoms um, has created tensions between the United States and the Thai government. There's this sort of sense that the U.S., you know, um, when, it, when it criticizes Thailand, you know, for a military coup or for, you know, repression of peaceful protesters, that it's treating the Thai government like a colonial state and that there's this sort of resentment that comes out, this Thai nationalism, which, which you know, is easily um, sort of prompted. Um, and... And that's something that's, you know, created, you know, a sense of, you know, a sense of sort of mild alienation, I suppose. Um, it's no longer quite clear that the two nations have fully congruent interests. And Thailand benefits a lot from China's, from trade and investment from China, um, especially when one considers the dominance of large ethnic Chinese conglomerates in Thailand today, which, you know, which have to do a lot of business with China. Um uh, and so, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's sort of an increasing tension over both over Thailand's, you know, warmth towards China, um, and also the, the, the friction that comes with, you know, this, these perceived slights to Thai sovereignty. Yeah, that's a feeling I think a lot of African countries probably can relate with quite well. Uh, so let's move south now down to Singapore. And Singapore in many ways is a standout from the rest of ASEAN. Uh, at the beginning of the show, I talked about how per capita income in ASEAN is about $4,000. But at the end of the day, that is not what it is in Singapore. Singapore is the most developed country in all of ASEAN. It's the uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's one of the most expensive cities in the world, if not the most expensive city in the world. But it's had to navigate in very tough waters. This is a tiny dot of a country uh, at the end of the Malaysian Peninsula. And uh, Kishore Mabubani, who is a famous thought leader, former Singaporean minister, you quoted him in your book, and you said that uh, you quoted him talking about Qatar and how Qatar offered Singapore a very important lesson on managing great power relationships. And he said that small states should behave like small states. What did he mean by that? Well, I think he meant, you know, reading between the lines that 
the you know that Singapore should not stick its neck out in in criticizing China. Um, and and that it's worth noting that that article that he wrote um, that I quoted from uh, prompted a huge pushback from the Singaporean foreign policy establishment, um, and they actually made the opposite argument that Singapore has always, you know, Singapore's credibility um, has you know lies in the fact that it has been willing to stand up to powerful countries, including the United States, in some instances, um, when its interests are you know, are, are transgressed. Um, I mean, I, I argue in the book that Singapore has always drawn the line of its interests very firmly. It has, I think, probably one of the most capable um, foreign policy uh, establishments of any ASEAN country. It also has the benefit of being able to, cr- of, of a bit of strategic follow through, um, you know, given the sort of institutional stability of Singapore under the PAP, you know, there is, it's the country that's probably been best able to set a strategic course and hold hold to it over the long term. Um, and that, that, I mean, that strategic course has been based around, you know, a strong military deterrent to prevent, you know, outside powers from, um, from, you know, picking a fight with tiny Singapore. They call it the poisonous shrimp doctrine that, you know, you might be able to swallow us, but we're going to make you very ill. Um, and, you know, they've also invested very heavily in, in, you know, multilateral diplomacy. I think the idea of just sort of like creating as many threads as you can that will potentially add up to a cushion that will, you know, you know prevent or forestall uh, conflict between the great powers. Um, and, it, you know, it really is one of the, you know, the only country in the world that can boast a special relationship with both the United States and China. Um, you know, it's quite a remarkable balancing act, but like, like the rest of the region, it finds itself increasingly, um, you know, pressed from both sides by this increasing superpower competition. And, you know, uh, the Singaporeans, I think, have been best at articulating a common Southeast Asian position on US-China rivalry. And they've, you know, Prime Minister Lee has had, you know, strong words for both powers. And his basic line is, you know, you two have to work this out. Um you know, both nations are um, have unrealistic expectations of the other, and it's time for them to you know reach some sort of an accommodation. Um, and of course, that's elicited um, you know uh, you know that's created tensions with both the United States and China to a certain extent. So you know, Singapore's balancing act is going to be tested in the years to come. Cobus, we don't hear that kind of pushback from African countries towards the great powers. We hear that they don't, they say they don't want to be caught in the middle, but almost in a very passive way. But the way that Prime Minister Li Xianlong in Singapore is, you know, is really like sitting down both of them and pointing his finger and saying, don't bring us into this. Do you see comparisons between what we're hearing out of Southeast Asia in terms of how they're negotiating with the the, the two great powers in Africa as well? A little bit, um, you know. So some, some relating to tech, particularly. I think both, both, um, you know, these sharp pushbacks from from both um, President Ramaphosa from South Africa and and um, leaders in Kenya on on these issues. But I think generally. Um, you know, I think they, they they don't find themselves in a position, you know, as relatively powerful as Singapore. You know, kind of as, as with with that level of of geographic importance and economic importance. So you know, so so I think even if they say it, they might not be heard. Yeah, but we never see pushback towards the Chinese. It's very easy to push back towards the Americans, but never towards the Chinese. Yeah, 
you know, kind of, I think, I think Africa is a little bit newer in that game than, than Southeast Asia. So I think they're, they're kind of, they're kind of holding back, I think, at the moment. Um, so Sebastian, in, in, like, there was, uh, in recently, a year or two ago, there, there was this kind of interesting controversy in South Africa around, um, this, so this, this white opposition politician traveled to Singapore, um, and she, um, she said that, um, that, look, Singapore managed to get its development up to the level it has among others because it it you know because of the influence of British colonialism and the the, the kind of there was this sub to this is basically this kind of subtext in in there that um, you know that a like the South Africans are, are taking the the history of, of colonialism too seriously um, and then also that you know there was a subtle kind of subtweet I maybe in there about about the the um, the, the level of, of closeness between South Africa and China um, and so I wanted to ask you, and, and then this this created like a firestorm of controversy. Like you know, it was it was it, it's a controversy that basically still goes on. You know, because South Africa has such a kind of fraught relationship with with both colonialism and then post post colonial racism. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, how do in in your mind, how where where does the the, the kind of the, the, this kind of influence on Singapore's growth lie in relation to to historical European connections versus newer Chinese connections? Well, I mean, Singapore is really sui generis. I mean, it, there's no power that's in, in at least in Southeast Asia, which has been able to approach its success in in you know transforming itself economically. I do think that the official Singapore story, you know, of, of from third world to first, to quote the title of Lee Kuan Yew's memoirs, over you know overstates the extent to which Singapore was you know a fishing village um, in 1965 when it was expelled from. The Malaysian Federation um, and and gained its independence. Uh, you know, it was in the 1930s. You know, a, a one of the you know the, the the great cities of the British Empire, and so there it, it had always functioned as a, an imperial node um, for the British Empire, uh, and and it was always a busy port. You know, which is of course what drew you know um, millions of ethnic Chi- southern Chinese um, to Singapore, um, and of course they today make up the the majority uh, of the population, their descendants. Um, and so, you know, but Singapore has also been, you know, it's recognized that the reemergence of China um, is a great economic opportunity and it's trimmed its sails to try and catch that wind. Um, and that there was unofficial connections um, between leaders from the two countries long before they officially established diplomatic relations in 1990. Uh, and so there has been, you know, um, there's been a lot of economic interaction between the two, um, the two countries. And that's, you know, I think that, you know, in some ways Singapore has benefited from the bequests of British colonialism. Um, but its leaders have also been quite canny in playing the cards that they were dealt. Um, Singapore also faced a lot of challenges given its exposed position, its small size, its lack of natural resources, and the fact that it functioned basically as an ethnic Chinese island in a Malay, predominantly Muslim sea. And of course, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this because it's a complex issue, but the, you know, the view of ethnic Chinese in that part of the world is um, fraught, to say the least. And so, you know, Singapore had to be very careful how it established relations with China. This is the reason it didn't establish relations until 1990, that the Singaporeans said they would be the last member of ASEAN to do so, you know, because they didn't want to, uh, they wanted to sort of downplay the idea that Singapore was sort of a Chinese city. And, um, and of course, this is now looming as one of the 
greatest points of tension in its relationship with the People's Republic of China, which also persists in viewing Singapore as a Chinese city or a Chinese country. Well, Singapore is located on the Malaysian Peninsula, so let's just head up across the border to Malaysia, where one of two of the most fascinating characters in ASEAN are located. Uh, that is 93-year-old, I think now, Prime Minister Mahathir. 95-year-old. Oh my God, the man will never die. Uh, Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, who is now on his second tour as the leader of, of Malaysia. No, he, he resigned last year, so he's now trying to get himself a third term. A third term. Okay, so he was there, he came back, now he wants to come back again. But he is a very colorful character. In many ways, he reminds me of John Magafuli in Tanzania, who has also struck a very, very hard line with the Chinese on infrastructure financing, but at the same time has, you know, multiple sides of his personality. So let me just kind of bring everybody back to 2018. Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed coming back into power, he targeted uh, his, uh, you know, his opponent on the funding of a $20 billion railway called the East Coast Railing Project. And if I remember the, the, the attack precisely, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Sebastian, that he said only a drunkard would take it, I think, is, or something to that extent. And he had this very colorful language saying that the Chinese were ripping off the Malaysians. They were going to become a colony of, of Malaysia. Now, this aroused a lot of excitement among the anti-China hawks in the United States who kind of said, see, there's a break in it. Here's the, the Belt and Road is really just a scam. It's really all kind of falling apart. And then a lot of people started to say, well, wait a minute. Is that really what he means? Because as soon as he came into power, uh, he he turned to the Chinese very effectively. Kobus, who does that remind you of in Zambia? <laughs> Michael Sata. <laughs> That's right. So this is a, a tried and true technique. Uh, so... You know, he pushed Beijing, Sebastian, and then Beijing came back and met him halfway and brought down the price of the railroad from $20 billion down to 14 or $15 billion. What is the lesson here from Mahathir Mohammed? Well, I think there's a couple of lessons. I think the first is that, you know, countries have a certain amount of agency in how they engage with things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's, you know, China has a lot to gain from countries signing on to this thing. And so they do have leverage. Now, not every country has equal leverage, obviously. If we look at a country like Laos, which is, you know, arguably the country in Southeast Asia, which is facing the greatest debt problems um, of any um, due to uh, Chinese loans. But, you know, this shows that there is, you know, a certain degree to which, you know, the recipient nations are helping to shape the Belt and Road. Um, I think the other thing is that this shows is that, you know, um, you know, that, that countries that have, you know, that are institutionally sound, that have, you know, um, you know, checks and balances that are accountable are more likely to be able to use the Belt and Road and benefit from it um, rather than sort of, you know, taking on too much debt and, and creating white elephant projects. I mean, the East Coast Rail Link is a really good example of this. I mean, that was approved by the government of Prime Minister Najib Razak, who um, who Mahathir's coalition defeated in 2018. Now, of course, Prime Minister Najib was linked to the radioactive, globe-spanning corruption scandal um, connected to the 1MDB um, Sovereign Wealth Fund. Now, for I mean, most people have probably heard of this, but you know, 1MDB involved the theft of an estimated $4 billion by close associates of the prime minister. And the prime minister is alleged to have, um, you know, received $600 million odd in his personal bank account. And he's currently on trial um, for, 
you know, in his involvement in this corruption scandal. But basically, you know, when the East Coast Rail Link was approved, um, he was under a huge amount of pressure, not just domestically, but also internationally. His relations with the United States were torpedoed by the 1MDB revelations. He found himself on the defensive. And as it later turned out, the Wall Street Journal reported that, you know, the East Coast Rail Link, the price of this was actually artificially inflated to, you know, allow the Malaysian government to cream off some money to help pay off some of the 1MDB debts. Um, and so, you know, there was, you know, this is a clear example of China, you know, opportunistically taking advantage of a leader's, um, you know, domestic troubles. Now, you know, if, if he hadn't have been in those, in that position to begin with, he would have had a much better, um, been in a much better position to negotiate a better deal for his country. And so wherever you see corruption, mismanagement, um, self-interested elites, and of course, I know Africa has a lot, a lot of those as Southeast Asia does. You, you know, you see China, you know, being able to, you know, push through projects that might not otherwise be viable. You know, um, you see a similar thing in Sri Lanka uh, with the Hambantota port, which is the paradigmatic instance of debt trap diplomacy, as it's been termed. But, you know, this was a, you know, a patronage project for the Rajapaksa family. And, um, you know, uh, you know, in, in many ways, the reality uh, of that belies that the idea that it was sort of a, a debt trap planted and planned by the Chinese government. Similar with the East Coast Rail Link, I think. Kenya faces a, a similar kind of issue, also a, rail, a big Chinese-funded rail project that um, that ended up be, having been inflated artificially to, to, to enrich officials, it, it seems, um, and is now politically quite, quite unpopular. Are there lessons from Southeast Asia and Malaysia, maybe particularly, that Africans can take in, in renegotiating this, those, those projects or kind of getting out from under them in some kind of way? Well, I think you just need... You need capable leadership. Um, and I think one of the problems that we see in Southeast Asia, uh, as in Africa, is that a lot of these nations are still are very young. I mean, they, they attained their independence sort of after the end of the Second World War in most cases. Um, and they're still grappling with, you know, the challenges of nation building, a lot of them. And so they're, a lot of them, their attention is drawn inwards. Politics is very, you know... Um, you know, stops at the water's edge, as they say. And, you know, these countries are are sort of, you know, politicians are are so busy dealing with domestic challenges to their power um, and, and maintaining, you know, ethnic relations on an even keel that it it is actually, you know, and, and issues like corruption and patronage are so ingrained in some Southeast Asian countries that it, it makes it very difficult for, you know, a government to, um, to act, you know, uh, and be consistent in how it you know, engages with a nation like China, um, which is offering a lot of money. I mean, the Belt and Road is very attractive for corrupt elites in, in Southeast Asia, as in Africa. And so, you know, I, I mean, I think it's sort of a truism to say that, you know, the more, the better your institutions are, the better, you know, the more democratic, the more accountable your system is, the better chance it has to, you know, to, to use China to the nation's benefit. But of course, you know, the question is how you get those institutions and that accountability. And, and that's, you know, that, that's, again, I mean, that's a challenge that also lies at the heart of a lot of Africa's development problems. And it's, it's something without an easy answer, unfortunately. Let's stay now in the southern part of ASEAN, close by in Indonesia. Uh, interestingly enough, that was one of the key stops in Wang Yi's recent ASEAN tour uh, in Jakarta, where he met with Joko Widodo, the president of Indonesia. Indonesia, for people who are not familiar, is just an absolutely enormous country. It doesn't look like it on a map. But it is the fourth largest country in the world by population. It's the largest Muslim country in the world. It's 
over 13,000 islands in the archipelago. Is that right? Is it, it, you know, it's just an enormous expanse of a country, um, a $1 trillion uh, GDP. Uh, so it's a very, very big country, but it's had some tensions with China in recent years, and one of them is over a topic that I think a lot of people in West Africa and off the coast of Mozambique will be very familiar with. Illegal fishing is a very big uh, big issue. And I'd also like you to address this this phrase that, that comes out of Indonesia of pragmatic equidistance uh, between the two major powers, the United States and China. So illegal fishing and pragmatic equidistance. Well, I think, you know, the illegal fishing issue is you know, uh, you know, a lot of nations in around the, you know, the borders of the South China Sea are facing this issue. I mean, part of it is simply China's, you know, huge demand for seafood um, uh, and fish. Another is the Chinese government's habit of using fishing fleets and coast guard vessels to assert its maritime claims. And so, what we've seen over the past few years in Indonesia is that the area around the Natuna Islands, which is just inside the southern curve of the nine dash line let me just stop you there very quickly because the nine dash line is is probably a new concept for a lot of folks can you just talk about what the nine dash line is and what the dispute in the south china sea is and how far the points in indonesia are from the chinese mainland just a little bit of a background on that sure so in 2009 the chinese lodged with the un commission a map um, with a huge looping line um of nine dashes um which claims for China sovereignty over the vast majority of the South China Sea. Now, this this line extends to within a few dozen miles of the coasts of the Philippines, not much further from the coast of Vietnam, very close to the coast of Borneo, um, Brunei, Malaysia. Uh, and, you know, and, it, and it, it cuts off huge percentages of the exclusive economic zones of Southeast Asian nations. Now, the exclusive economic zone is a is a zone, a 200 nautical mile zone um, that extends out from a country's coast um, under international law, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And so China's basically claimed sovereignty over this entire waterway, which, which sees trillions of dollars worth of global trade transverse it every year. Um, and, you know, Indonesia is not a formal claimant state. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, say that there is a dispute. It's sort of tried to shy away from open confrontation over this issue. Um, but, you know, the, you know, there is a small pocket of Indonesian waters um, that lie within this nine-dash line. Um, and so China has, of course, sent its Coast Guard vessels and its, you know, and fishing fleets into this area. Uh, and there's been increasing sort of, you know, incidents of friction in that area. Um, and this is, you know, been... Um, you know, this has been sort of bubbling along for a number of years now. The Indonesians have been, I think, quite good, as many Southeast Asian claimant states have been in quarantining the South China Sea uh, disputes from more productive parts of the relationship. And, um, you know, President Jokowi's government, um, you know, has you know looked to China um, to provide a lot of the funding for its, you know, it's it's got a uh, you know, a program of infrastructure building that it that is it is seeks to sort of you know increase um, connectivity within the Indonesian islands and and you know and, and help boost the region's economy, um, and it's looked to China for that, and so it's you know it's had to tread a very careful line in the South China Sea, as as many as I said, many of the nations have had to do, um, 
And so I, I think that Indonesia illustrates well what I was talking about before about you know forging nations from the colonial empires that went, that, that came before them. I mean, Indonesia was you know is is a is in a totally artificial concept. I mean, to a large extent, all nations are artificial, but Indonesia you know was the the one unifying characteristic of Indonesia was that it was all governed by the Dutch. Um, uh, it, you know, there was no, uh, there was no, we can't point to any pre-colonial uh, power that ex whose power extended across the entire Indonesian archipelago. And so nation building has been a very piecemeal and, um, you know, sort of two steps forward, one step back process for the Indonesian government. I mean, until recently, the government had an active, you know, was fighting an active Muslim insurgency, separatist insurgency in Aceh on the island of Sumatra. It's still fighting, you know, separatist, you know, a movement in West Papua. Um, and there was also a history of communist insurgency during the Cold War. And so this is a, a nation which is, is sort of got a central petal sort of tendency. You know, the government looks inwards. It has a, you know, a population of 270 million people that need to be fed and that need jobs. And so the Indonesian government, you know, probably, you know, you know, more than, you know, most other Southeast Asian governments is absorbed with its own development challenges and its own, um, own affairs to a large extent. And so, you know, it, it, it has looked to China for support in that regard. And that's, that's, you know, meant that it's had to tread a very careful line when it comes to the question of illegal fishing, which is, of course, a proxy for the more serious problem of maritime sovereignty claims. As Eric mentioned, Indonesia is, is, is the world's largest um, Muslim country. Um, we've seen in, in Africa, and Africa's um, majority Muslim countries have been very wary of, of talking about uh, about the situation in Xinjiang, to the extent that that several of them have actually come out in support of China's line on, on that everything is actually, that China's line that, that everything is fine in Xinjiang. Um, and we haven't seen a lot of kind of popular energy uh, among the among the populations, either in Africa or in the Middle East, on this issue, um, is is there like how, how is the situation shaking out in Indonesia in relation to Xinjiang? Well, there's certainly domestic, you know, constituencies that are deeply concerned about this, but I think that most governments in Southeast Asia, Indonesia included, and I would say that this would probably apply to African, many African governments too, view this basically as a question of national sovereignty over, a, you know, a question of of human rights. Um, and so they are, you know, there's a sort of reciprocal understanding that if we don't criticize them, they won't criticize us. And this is one of the things that I think is most welcome about the way that China does business in Southeast Asia, that it doesn't have this sort of liberal um, missionary sort of uh, tendency like a lot of Western countries do, um, uh, for better or for worse, right? Um, and this is something that, you know, China has lent very heavily on, you know, and, and, and this has meant, you know, that, you know, this is the reason that that you know Indonesia and Malaysia and Brunei have not spoken out about this question. Um, I, China has also made a lot of attempts to reach out to um, you know Muslim groups in these countries and sort of you know invite them on trips to China where they visit mosques in in Inner Mongolia and places like that. And they, and they kind of you know they they have kind of you know lobby them. They they donate. They make donations to organizations in, in these countries. And so there's sort of been a, a you know, a, a program of uh, soft power program aimed at sort of winning the hearts and minds of, of, of you know, individuals within these organizations. Um, and it's been quite successful. Um, you know, uh, I think this points to something quite interesting about the way that China engages 
um, and, and, and indeed a contradiction in the way that it engages with the region is that it sort of presents itself as in Africa as a as an anti-colonial, a fellow sort of victim of Western imperial bullying. Um, but at the same time, it's the one former sort of, you know, uh, imperial victim that is now got, you know, something approaching imperial power of its own. And so there's this sort of contradiction at the heart of how China frames itself in that way. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, this is, you, you know, this tension, again, lies at the begin at the at the center of Southeast Asia's relationship with China. Let's close our country tour of Southeast Asia in the Philippines, where without a doubt, there's no competition, the most colorful character on the political scene is President Rodrigo Duterte. I mean, he he is charismatic as they come in this part of the world, but he and he in many ways highlights the complexity of the China-U.S.-ASEAN relationship. In the one hand, he's got direct interests in the South China Sea squabble. At the same time, this is a former colony of the United States. And as you pointed out in your book, there is this kind of odd kind of sensation when you're in the Philippines that you really feel like you're in middle America. It is in the sense that American culture is so pervasive. All your favorite, you know, Chevy dealers are there, McDonald's. It's also one of the poorest countries in uh, in the region. But at the same time, uh, President Duterte has really thrown his weight behind the Chinese before quitting the Chinese and then going back to the Chinese. So talk to us about President Duterte and, and the Philippines role in all of this. Almond Duterte, again, you know, he's he's you know, he's a very difficult character to read. Um, I mean, shortly after he came to power, you know, one of the things that got him elected was his promise to crack down on drug related crime and to use he, he, he said he would use violence to quash this problem, a problem that successive governments had failed to address. And within, you know, days of um, entering the presidential palace, he, you know, the police started fanning out into the slums and, and shooting dead people, many of them simply drug users um, or, or innocents entirely. And, and Duterte's drug war has now racked up, you know, um, a massive death toll. Um, and of course, this has created, this has been faced with a huge amount of pushback from Western powers, including the United States. And this is one thing that sort of caused Duterte to, you know, turn his back as he claimed at the time on the United States and to embrace powers like China that sort of have this no strings um, sort of form of engagement. Um, again, like, like Jokowi, I mean, he faces a lot of developmental challenges. He was this, he came to power like Jokowi as a, as a small town mayor who, you know, had a can do attitude and, and promised to, to get things done. And so he's also turned to China for infrastructure funding um, to, and actually just a few days ago, um, the two nations signed, this is during um, Wang Yi's visit um, to Manila, the two nations signed an agreement um, to build a railway connecting the two former U.S. military bases at Clark and Subic Bay, which um, I mentioned in my book, um, you know, is, is highly symbolic of how, you know, the, the, the balance of power is shifting in the region. Um, but, you know, Duterte has, you know, he, he has tried to, you know, benefit from Chinese largesse. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the ways he's done that is been to downplay um, the tensions in the South China Sea. And, and of course, just a few months before he took office, the Philippines won a very important arbitral case in the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague, which essentially, with the Philippines had brought that case in 2013, um, challenging a lot of China's legal 
arguments and claims um, in the South China Sea. And um, the Hague Tribunal ruled in favor of the Philippines on virtually every one of its challenges. Not all of them, but just about all the important stuff. Um, but Duterte set that aside. Instead of using that to build international consensus and build pressure on China, he basically abandoned it and said, look, this confrontation has gotten us nowhere. I'm going to make friends with Xi Jinping and we're going to, um, you know, the country's going to benefit from this, uh, from Chinese largesse. You know, he's also a Mindanaoan. He's from the south of the Philippines, a region that saw, you know, you know, American atrocities during the, the War of Pacification at the early part of the 20th century when the U.S. conquered the Philippine Islands. And so he's he also is sort of, you know, is part of the small minority of Filipinos who are highly critical of the United States for its pa imperial past in the Philippines. And, you know, as you suggested, um, Eric, you know, this is a you know, country that is in some ways more pro-American than the United States is itself. Um, but there is a small and vocal constituency that, you know, has sort of bucked against this sort of smothering quasi-colonial relationship that's persisted since independence in 1946. And, you know, and, and you know, Duterte has sort of given voice to a lot of these anti-American tropes. And, is, and, and, and I think the criticisms of his drug war have simply played into those resentments. Um, and, you know, it's... Um, it's led the Philippines into a very strange position where, you know, the vast majority of the security and political establishment is as pro-American as any in the region, if not more. Yet the leader is someone who, given the peculiarities of the Philippine political system, has had a huge amount of power to wrench the country's foreign policy toward China. Um, and arguably, you know, there is a need for the Philippines to establish a, a better balance between the two powers in an era of increasing competition. I mean, the Philippines could well be the front line um, of a conflict if one was to break out on the South China Sea. However, you know, Duterte's foreign policy, you know, um, has lurched from one extreme to the other. And it's very hard to sort of to find any sort of consistent thread that you can follow. In, in Africa, one frequently sees that, that the story, the historical story of China's development, that itself as a such power, um, you know, kind of as, as a kind of a, a you know, a factor in convincing leaders to work with China, just simply this fact of the, the hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty in such a short, short, short time. And it's, it's a, it's a, it has a lot of kind of traction against um, Western criticisms of China as well. Do you see that same kind of dynamic in places like the Philippines? Or is the fact that they're so much closer to China, does that kind of complicate the story? Well, I think there is, there's a certain amount of admiration, you know, it, you know, it's, it's hard not to be impressed by the rapidity of China's economic growth. Um, and I think, but I think that, you know, a, large, a lot of it just has to do with proximity and the, the corollary, which is economic entanglement. I mean, China is now the most important economic partner to every nation in the region. Um, it's not the top trading partner of everyone, but just about. And it's, as you mentioned, ASEAN is, you know, China's number one trade partner now. And so the region has a huge amount to gain from a stable and prosperous China and a China that was in a state of decline or internal collapse or civil war, as has happened, obviously, through the grand sweep of Chinese history, you know, has, you know, would be terrible for the region. And a lot of people recognize that, um, you know, the, the, the last, you know, when dynasties have fallen in China, that's very often led to refugees washing up in on the shores of Southeast Asian countries or, or trickling down through the mountains into um, Myanmar and Thailand, and, and, you know, they've had a hugely destabilizing effect, you know, during these periods. And so, you know, I, I do think that there's, there's a sort of 
a mix of sort of this anti-colonial sort of residues in both regions. You have the success that China's had in developing its own economy. And you have, you know, just the the fact that the, the economic ties are already so thick between these two regions that, you know, that there's, it's, it's you know, it, it incentivizes the region to sort of maintain good relations and continue that, um, you know, that upward trajectory. We started on a question about the big picture, and I'd like to close on a question on the big picture. You've walked us through a number of the countries. Your book takes us through all the details of it. Let's say you were invited to the African Union to meet with a group of presidents, prime ministers, and senior level officials. Uh, They would say, Sebastian, you have been studying what the Chinese have been doing in a fragmented part of the world, and they've been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We are relatively new to dealing with the Chinese and also, you know, with this new standoff with the United States. Uh, What would be the advice that you would give those presidents and prime ministers of the African Union on how to better manage their relationship with China? Well, it's it's a very complex question. I mean, I think one advantage that Africa has is that it's not in China's backyard, so it doesn't need to engage with China. It can say no. It can walk away from the table. Um, and so I think that the region, you know, probably could do a lot more. And I would say to these leaders that, you know, you should do a lot more to um, determine exactly what your development needs are and try and, you know, um, shape engagement more proactively. Now, I am not familiar enough with Africa to know if this is something that is being done, and if so, where. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for a lot of the, the nations of Southeast Asia to do that. I mean, again, you know, um, post-colonial nations with, you know, unresolved conflicts or, you know, um, internal um, ethnic strife, um, other nation building challenges, you know, the, all of these things, you know, distract the attention of leaders and make it more difficult to, um, to sort of formulate consistent, um, development strategies, even, even leaving aside the question of China. Um, and China is a very powerful partner. It's got a lot of money. It's, it's, it's eager to invest. It's eager for allies. But I think that, you know, I I would say, yeah, you, you know, try and set the terms of your engagement with it. And, um, also try to maintain a, a healthy balance in your international, in your foreign relations. You know, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, but it's, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of that depends on things being sorted out on the home front. And I think that if, if a nation is corrupt and mismanaged, um, you know, that is only going to make it easier for, or that, that'll, that'll tend, tend to, you know, in those situations, you'll see the most negative impacts of Chinese investment, um, uh, as indeed we have in Southeast Asia. Sebastian Strangio is the author of the book In the Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Uh, Pretty much everybody in the China watching space listed it as one of the top China books of 2020. I can't recommend it enough. You can get the audio book, the Kindle version, the hard copy, you know, you can get them all. So go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books and you can check it out. I highly recommend it, even if you are not in Southeast Asia or even interested in Southeast Asia. But again, what we're trying to do is see, are there lessons that can be extracted about how the Chinese and to some extent the United States are engaging these reasons so that they can be applied to other parts of the world, places like Africa. Sebastian, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing in addition to your work at The Diplomat, where can they find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter at at SSSStrangio. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, I've also got a website, www.sebastianstranger.com, where I post some of my articles. And at thediplomat.com, I blog regularly on Southeast Asian politics and current affairs. Um, and so, you know, people can go to either of those, um, or any of those three to, to yeah, to um, read some more of my work. Excellent. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes of the show. Sebastian, thank you so much for staying up late for us in Australia. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show again soon. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Kobus, the parallels between ASEAN and Africa and their relationship both with China and the United States, uh, again, they're very different regions. I don't want to oversimplify the similarities, but there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from what's been going on in this region, simply because they've been doing it for so much longer. One of the key takeaways, though, and and I, and I we didn't have time to really go into it with Sebastian, but the countries here know they can't get away without having a very cogent, coherent China policy. They know what they want out of China. That was the lesson for me looking at what Mahathir was doing. You see Duterte is moving back and forth in the Philippines all the time. Vietnam thinks endlessly about its engagement with China. And it's one of the topics that you and I have talked about that China has now, it doesn't have an Africa policy anymore. It has a Kenya policy, a Nigeria policy, a viewpoint on South Africa, and it's at the country level. That is not as refined from the African point of view towards China that there is not as, as refined a South African view as to what they want out of the BRI, what they want out of China specifically, how they're going to manage the relationship between the United States, China, Europe, Japan, all of them. And in many ways, it's still that these foreign policies in Africa are oriented towards London, Brussels, and Washington, still. And, and that is, to me, the biggest lesson out of Southeast Asia that these countries really are focused on Beijing. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, China is just a permanent fixture on their landscape, you know, which which I think it, it, it is starting to become in Africa as well. But as you say, there's a, there's a lot of capacity is lacking. Um, and also a lot of cultural knowledge, I think. You know, it's it's, it's really important, I think, for, for African diplomats to just know more about Asia, not just about China, but about all of the all of the, the kind of Asian actors. Um, you know, kind of because, because they are going to be Africa's like main trading economic other partners over the next few years you know I think I, I, I don't foresee a massive kind of rush back of European or American power in, into Africa you know I, I just don't think that's where that's where the attention lies in, in Europe and in the, in the US at the moment well that's why I was very excited when I saw the news that South Africa is engaging ASEAN as a partner uh, in my supermarket here I get now uh, South African wines there's South African citrus uh, South African products are showing up on the shelves now. So that's exciting because it's a new market for South Africa. These are burgeoning markets. It also will reduce some of the dependency on the China market, which is a really acute problem in a number of countries that they feel boxed in because China is their largest trading partner. And as a result of that, there is leverage that comes with it or the perception of leverage. That being said, Kobus, uh, Mohammed Mahathir really demonstrates that you can push back. Michael Sada demonstrated that you can push back. And I think that there would be some benefit in African leaders really, you know, pushing back, again, along the lines of what John Magafuli did with the Bagamayo port in Tanzania, 
where he did push back. That port deal still hasn't come through. And it's not necessarily a binary thing that if you push back hard and you negotiate tough, that your relationship is going to fracture with the Chinese and they'll walk away and go somewhere else. I think and there's a lesson there that in some from some of these uh, these Southeast Asian countries and how they've negotiated some of their deals with the Chinese. Last key point here, here in Vietnam, as I mentioned in the show, the ability to work with multiple partners at the same time. Again, the Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese are all very active here in both the development and in the investment space. And I think that also makes for a healthier environment as well, is that if we saw big infrastructure projects from the Japanese and at the same time, say, the Turks or the Chinese together in a place like Kenya, to me, would be healthier than, than if it's just predominantly the Chinese. Yes, um, and I think I think many African leaders would agree with you, and 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 we see we see in in several countries more work trying to kind of to pull these in. Of course, you know each of those relationships need a particular kind of set of work, a particular set of of skills, um, you know, diplomatic expertise and so on, and and those are lacking on the ground in Africa. But 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 I think I think in general terms, like everyone would agree that you know that that more partners are better, that you need to to work the the, the established partners and the new ones um, and then you, yeah, that you need to be open to doing different things with different people um, and I think in the process there that that then actually makes the relationship with China more valuable rather than less valuable. And that may organically happen now in the years ahead simply because the amount of Chinese development financing is going down. The Chinese are not spending the way that they were over the past 10 years so that will all open up opportunities for other players to come into the market and for African stakeholders to reach out to other countries to engage on development finance and infrastructure construction. So we may actually see that happen organically. So uh, listen, we went a little bit longer in our show today than we normally do. I always hate going over an hour because I feel like it abuses the listener's time and your time, which is so precious. So if you've made it this far in the show, we really do appreciate it. Also, we want to invite you to join us uh, on in our, in, in, our, in our community of readers that we communicate to every day through our email newsletter. Subscriptions uh, start just at $7 for students and teachers, $15 for everybody else. Uh, but we cover everything in the China-Africa space and increasingly now in the China Global South space where what we're doing is we're connecting what the Chinese are doing in the Americas, in Arabia, in Asia, and also, of course, in Africa together in all of those different regions. So about half the newsletter now is about Africa, and the other half is about the rest of the global south. So it's a very, very interesting rundown every single day that comes straight into your inbox at 6 a.m. Washington time. So go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe and sign up for a subscription. We'd love for you to be a part of our community of readers. And of course, if you have any questions whatsoever, you can reach out directly to myself at uh, Eric, E-R-I-C, at ChinaAfricaProject.com or Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And of course, you can find us on all of our various social media channels, which the lovely lady will tell you at the end of the show on where to find them. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. We'll see you again next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.